0: welcome to YHTV's Magical Medical Tour. This is episode 29. I'm Christina Suzuma and with me is our wonderful medical guide, Dr. Glenn Wollman. Good day to you, Glenn.
1: Beautiful day to you, Christina, and greetings everyone. Welcome to Magical Medical Tour. I'm Dr. Glenn Wollman and I will be your medical guide as we travel through the healthcare galaxy today, searching for ways towards optimal health. How's your search going, Christina?
0: Oh, I'm still searching. I'm still searching. This roller coaster is unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, that's why we need healers and we need people like you bringing the information from the healers out there.
0: Well, can't do it without you, Doc.
1: Well, we're having a good time together, clearly.
0: Oh, yes, yes. I'm excited today.
1: Yeah, I don't blame you. Today is mm-hmm. it's really going to be a magical medical tour. And we are going to go on a journey with a doctor who uh, takes care of people on journeys and that come back from journeys and prepares them for journeys. Mm. We're going to be talking today. Uh, and before I even say who we're talking to, this is another example. You know, when I think about one of the reasons for this show is to uh, show people that there are so many fields within the field of healthcare care and healing, and even within each field, there are specialties uh, that you can make your beautiful path to go on and uh, our doctor today is dr mary louise scully Uh, she is currently uh, the director of the sansom clinic for travel and tropical medicine she also was on the faculty uh, clinical faculty at uh, yale university working in uh, travel and health she's a uh, She's a writer and an editor for a journal of travel and tropical you know, magazine update. She does so many things, and today we're going to go on a great journey with her. So I don't want to uh, hold up the flight any longer, and I'd like to introduce you and our uh, global community to Dr. Mary Louise Scully. So Mary Louise, usually as the medical guide, what I like to do for our uh, global viewers is to give them an idea of the path we're going to go on today so we'll probably start with just a little bit of your original journey and trying to find out what turned you on to becoming a healer and going into infectious disease and then going into uh, travel and tropical medicine as a subspecialty also but then we want to get a lot of practical advice for our viewers because i know many of them are travelers, and uh, there's so much you have to say, aside from some of the great experiences you've had. I'm going to try and make sure we cover some of those also. So does that sound all right with you?
2: That sounds wonderful.
1: Okay, so let's start with uh, just you telling us a little bit about uh, when Mary Louise decided to become a healer and uh, how that uh, unfolded.
2: Uh, Well, I'm afraid my story perhaps isn't too unique because um, my father was a doctor, and actually my grandfather was a doctor as well. Actually, they were both surgeons, general surgeons. This picture behind me, which you can't see, I don't think, uh, actually hung in both my grandfather's office and my father's office, and now it hangs in my office. I I did get it reframed. Um, But I think one of my early memories is um, uh, sometimes on Sundays, my father would take me and my sisters to the hospital while he did his Sunday rounds. And I remember we used to sit in a corridor along these chairs and he would go off and do his rounds and various nurses and other hospital employees would stop by and say, oh, are you Dr. Scully's daughter? I kept my maiden name, by the way. Um, And they would tell these stories. Oh, he's such a wonderful physician and a compassionate man and good surgeon. He saved my Uncle Joe's uh, uh, life when he had appendicitis. So I think there was some early perhaps inspiration there. But actually, as I got to high school and early college, I actually wanted to be a marine biologist, Um, Mm -hmm. sort of switched gears. Um, And um, maybe I was inspired by the watching Jacques Cousteau and the Calypso. Um, But I remember it was uh, spring of my um, uh, freshman year and uh, part of the lab was to dissect a lobster. And I don't know if you've ever eaten lobster, but there's lots of claws and mandibles and every single one of them has a name. And I said it came over me sort of like a wave. Maybe it was the formaldehyde, but I thought, well, maybe I should go back to doing humans. <laughs> so at that point, I actually became uh, active pre med and um, actually uh, decided to go on to medical school. And so that was my initial path to medicine.
1: Okay, so uh, you know, you mentioned Jacques Cousteau, and I know you have uh, an interesting story maybe to tell us. You were uh, an expedition uh, team physician with uh, his son, weren't you?
2: Exactly. It's kind of interesting that 40 years later in my life, um, after becoming a physician, I end up landing here in Santa Barbara, where lo and behold, uh, Jean-Michel Cousteau, Jacques' son, lives and runs a nonprofit called Ocean Futures. And I actually have gotten to know him and I we're very good friends now, and I got to travel with them on one of their filmings of uh, Return to the Amazon back in 2007. Mm. So that was very, very fun.
1: (laughs) What interested you in, you know, there's so many fields. I'm always fascinated by why we go into the fields that we do. So you went into internal medicine first because you're a thinker Mm -hmm. and you like to diagnose and have a lot of information, I'm assuming. But then you... You branched out and went into infectious diseases. What what interested you there?
2: Well, yeah, I think I did toy with the idea of being a surgeon, actually, an ear, nose, and throat physician was what I was thinking about. Uh, but I really like the interactions with patients. And uh, the joke is when somebody's under anesthesia, it's only a one-way conversation. <laughs> so um, so, um, but I think what inspired me for infectious disease was really the um, – I went to medical school out in Chicago, Rush Medical College, and I did some – summer projects with the infectious disease doctors there, um, specifically Gordon Trentholm and Larry Goodman, um, and really working with those clinicians um, that were just very, well, very smart. They always wanted the interesting cases. Um, I think that was really my inspiration. And then when I came back east and uh, to, uh, did my residency um, at uh, Yale and then my fellowship, there was yet more uh, inspiring people. Um, Frank Bia and Michelle Berry ran the International uh, Health Clinic at Yale. And I started working with them back actually in 1989 and continued through all the years working with them. Um, so it was really that sort of led me, those inspiring people are what led me to infectious disease, not to mention the uh, science uh, of infectious disease being very interesting. Um, and there's a little joke in infectious disease that perhaps we all have a little bit of a quirky sense of humor. Uh, so you find your niche, perhaps, with these people. I mean, anybody who likes tapeworms and parasites, you know, <laughs> it's, it's kind of a, a unique group.
1: <laughs> well, we did interview a uh... A friend and colleague of yours, Dr. Stephen Jose, he was, uh, in fact, our very first uh, interview and our conversation on Magical Medical Tour, and uh, people still talk to me about that because we talked about a 37-foot tapeworm. <laughs> that seems to be the most impressive part of everything we've ever said. So I'm hoping that you're you're going to beat oh, that to today. Come up with something during today that's going to excite Christina and the rest of our world (laughs) because they still love that part. Uh, I brought something. Go ahead. I just said
2: I brought something for later. Yes. No. (laughs) You
1: know, I remember I had uh, when I was taking parasitology in medical school, it it was so funny. I don't, uh, don't remember his name at this moment, but he always wore a brown suit which was kind of interesting for us. But then he would tell (laughs) us these wonderful stories, how he would go to these third world and maybe even fourth world countries and actually bring the parasites into his body so that he could then bring them home back to his lab and study them.
2: That's quite devoted.
1: (laughs) I I was very impressed with that. So I am completely impressed. And I assume that every uh, infectious disease person is that dedicated. So congratulations, (laughs) Mary Louise. What what I want to do today, I was thinking that maybe a good way to get a lot of information to people is for the three of us to plan a trip and just decide right from beginning to end the whole process of how travel medicine and tropical medicine will be part of the way we should consider planning a trip. So we're sitting here and we're thinking about where we want to go on in the world. If we decide to go somewhere, we pick a place, how do we find out if that place is a safe, healthy place, if we're just going for vacation rather than for, say, nonprofit work or charitable work or business, we're just going for vacation. So, what's the first step in trying to decide whether or not to go to a place in terms of?
2: Well, in, in terms of uh, information, available information, um, probably your absolutely best resource is going to be assuming people have internet, which I'm sure they do, is to go to the CDC website. That's our Centers for Disease Control. Um, Actually, www.cdc.gov. And it is a wonderful resource for many aspects of health, but they actually have a section on travel that uh, people can click on, and then from there it sort of breaks down into giving you lots of information, um, including about disease risk, specifically yellow fever, malaria, dengue, um, hepatitis or food and water. So there's a lot of good information there that's really just a um, person can access on their own before they even decide if they need to sort of see uh, a travel physician. Mm.
1: Okay, so now we've picked a place, and we find out that it has certain requirements uh, in terms of uh, – there there may be some places that actually the CDC has sometimes there are warnings when something breaks out and they start telling people not to go to places. Isn't that correct?
2: Absolutely, yeah. And Actually, the CDC also has travel advisories and um, useful uh, links to actually the um, – uh, government areas of each country and even can find you clinics and doctors within those countries. So an amazing resource.
1: Do you, uh, in your, uh, journal that you write in, the update journal, uh, is that something people should look at in terms of picking out a place?
2: Um, that particular journal is more for physicians that practice travel medicine. Um, and it's a subscription that they get to, um, Sort of hone into sort of specific uh, articles that have been just recently published. So it's a, more like a review. So that one is not a good resource for a layperson per se. They might find certain articles interesting, but um, they're not available to the public without a subscription.
1: Okay, so back, so we've got the CDC, we pick a place, and now we find that uh, they have certain diseases there and certain recommendations in terms of vaccinations or medications that should be taken. Uh, So what's the next step for a person at that point? They find out they have to get shots or something.
2: Exactly. So one of the big ones that comes up with that, of course, is yellow fever. Uh, Yellow fever is a virus transmitted by a daytime-biting mosquito, and it's the one disease, well, it's one of the few remaining diseases that is technically quarantinable. So a country can restrict your entry uh, and or your passage through a country if you're not immunized for this. Um, it's a very good vaccine. It is a live virus vaccine, so you don't want to give it to people whose immune systems aren't strong. Um, but that said, once you you would want to be screening the person for those problems, they do get vaccinated. And then they get something called this, I will hold it up to the camera, Uh, something called your yellow immunization card, um, which is how we document the yellow fever vaccine on a certain part of it. Um, And then we use the other sections of it to actually document other vaccines. And that is what that country, uh, I tell people keep it right with your passport, that way you won't lose it. But that's what that country, um, for example, South Africa, if somebody's traveling up to um, Victoria Falls and into a yellow fever zone, that's what South Africa's going to need or want to see uh, to let you do that sort of route. So yellow fever is still the, the most required vaccine. Almost all our other uh, vaccines are recommended. Um, as you get into sort of hepatitis vaccine, hepatitis A for food and water, um, typhoid for salmonella typhoid of course, updates on tetanus. So all those are sort of recommended. So getting back to your patient and traveling, uh, once someone realizes, um, oops, I'm going to need these particular vaccines. Um, most times at that point, they will realize they need to find a travel specialist, um, that is now with the internet that's also pretty easy to find people that do travel medicine um back to the cdc site they have a, a, a yeah it's the best way to find a, a clinic doctor is to hoggle to on the switch it at yellow fever clinics mm-hmm. um to give yellow fever vaccine for example in the state of california you actually have to be licensed you have to pass an exam so doctors that give yellow fever vaccine you've got a good shot knowing that they're practice travel medicine, so that's a great resource on the, on the CDC site, and you can put in your state and your county, and it'll list all the doctors that are uh, and clinics that give yellow fever vaccine. so that's a, a great resource. Um, it, the other resources I should give credit to are um, something globally called the International Society of Travel Medicine, uh, that's www.istm, And that also has a way where you can find uh, physicians and clinics um, actually all around the world um, um, without being um, a member. Uh, So you can that's access to the public. Um, And the last one in America is um, our tropical group here in America uh, is called the American Society of Tropical Medicine and Hygiene www.astmh.org. And that's another great resource. Same thing. You can go in, um, put your uh, state and county um, and and pulls up a a group of names. So that would be the traveler's next step would be to find themselves a provider um, that could give the vaccines that they need and um, hopefully knows um, about the risks and benefits of the vaccines.
1: When When you, uh, find this out and you find your travel doctor, there's a certain concept in here that sometimes the, for example, the hepatitis shots take a few weeks, I understand, or maybe uh, there's a certain amount of time between the shots that, uh, you need to account for. So that's, that's an important part also, correct?
2: Correct. Yes. So, um, hepatitis A, uh, vaccine is probably the most important, uh, uh, food and water, uh, vaccine that we give people. And, uh, there is a little bit of a, uh, a- saying that uh, hepatitis A vaccine is probably still worth giving uh, right up until the time of departure. Uh, I always joke and say on the way to the airport, uh, because hepatitis A actually has a long incubation period. Mm -hmm. So even if you get the vaccine in and their first meal is contaminated, um, you actually probably do abort the uh, infection. So hepatitis A um, you know, I wouldn't pass on someone just because they're having an imminent departure. But ideally, in the world of travel medicine, we love to see people about four weeks uh, before, um, four to five weeks ideally. It gives the vaccines enough time to become effective. The for kids growing up nowadays, they get immunized automatically for A and B, but adults over age 18 might not have been. So a great vaccine for that is that combination hepatitis A and B vaccine, which is called Twinrix. And that's given uh, time zero, you know, and then one month later, and then six months later. Mm -hmm. And then that person goes forward and is protected for both hepatitis A and hepatitis B for um, the rest of their life, uh, long term at this point. So those are are great vaccines. Um, hepatitis. Go ahead. Oh, hepatitis B um, is you know more blood, saliva, sexual. So sometimes my travelers say, "Well, I'm not going." to have sex or something. But obviously, it comes up with um, accidents, too, in needing medical care uh, abroad or uh, a blood transfusion or something like that. So I still think hepatitis B um, is a great vaccine. Um, unfortunately, because people are over 18, a lot of times uh, it's not covered by their insurance. Um, so they have to pay out of pocket sometimes. But I still think it's, it's worth it, uh, because these are great vaccines. And completely preventable diseases that um, we should be given immunization for.
1: There's a growing number of families that have chosen not to vaccinate their children. And these families may also want to travel.
2: Those are very challenging patients. <laughs> uh, sometimes I'll have... Um If you grow up in the United States um, and you choose not to immunize your child, you can ride along on something called herd immunity because everyone around you uh, is immunized. And so you're not seeing those diseases like measles and um, that that other countries receive. Now you take that same child who's unimmunized and is now 16 and she wants to go to uh, Ghana with the church group that's going over. You have a totally different ball game going on here. And interesting, all those parents, they do realize it at that time because you've changed the playing field. You've now take, you're going to take an unimmunized person and put them down in a part of the world where there is more diseases like measles and typhoid and things like that. So the, the best is when the 16 year old looks at her mother as we start to go through this, and she's realizing the number of vaccines she's going to need on what's called the catch-up schedule, she looks at her mother and says, what were you thinking? (laughs) So it's always an interesting interaction between uh, the uh, children who are, are just amazed that they're parents chose not to immunize them uh, when uh, everyone else was. So it's it's an interesting visit. But the parents actually understand it at that point in time, and they are completely pro-immunizing. They do not want their 16-year-old daughter to get yellow fever or measles or typhoid. So very interesting.
1: Then we move on, and people get their shots, and they know they're going to be traveling somewhere. So should they get... Uh, travel insurance.
2: Travel insurance is a great idea. Um, the It's best to check with each insurance company before you go because some of them do cover somewhat, but they often don't cover evacuation insurance. Um, that's sort of getting you out if you're in trouble. Um, and a friend of mine let me share his story. Um, I sometimes work in a part of Africa called, called Chad, um, and Bill Felstener um, uh, is the president of Chad Relief Foundation. And um, one of the trips when I wasn't with him, and he was in Chad, which is uh, just in the middle of Sub-Saharan Africa, um, he got chest pain. And um, we had used uh, SOS International as one of the insurance companies. And um, it's happy to say it worked great. They actually flew a physician to the capital of Chad, met him, flew him business class um, back to Paris, got him into a Paris hospital. And luckily it wasn't anything that ended up to be serious, but it was a nice example of, of using the insurance and realizing that, hey, when it, when we needed it, it worked. So, so I would say that's a good recommendation. Um, there's a lot of other companies and I, I assume they all work as well, but evacuation insurance, um, especially if somebody's, um, older maybe does have other medical problems, um, is a great, great idea. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. So now we're getting ready to start packing. And of course we pack our, uh, you know, all of our clothes and cameras and things like that, but we want to set up a medical kit. When we spoke with uh, Dr. Lori Grossman, a homeopathic doctor, in one of our earlier uh, interviews, uh, she gave us some uh, things to put from a homeopathic point of view into a traveling medical kit. Uh, What would you suggest for us in a traveling medical kit?
2: Well, very interesting. When I see a patient who comes into the office, that's one of the things I put in our little kit. We sometimes uh, make them up a little kit and one page right over it and the one side says right off the CDC list of things you might want to bring in your travel kit. Um, so the CDC has a nice checklist. Um it includes things like a maybe a topical antibiotic ointment, um a mild steroid cortisone cream in case you got poison ivy, um Tylenol, Motrin, um numerous other items. But I think the one that I stress for people to put in their um kit uh is to have along a little Imodium or Peptobismol for traveler's diarrhea. Uh, Torista. That's an important one. Um, And when I see patients in the office, um, I actually, it has become standard of care to actually give a traveler a prescription for an antibiotic uh, that could be self-initiated in the setting of traveler's diarrhea. About 80% of traveler's diarrhea is caused by um, bacterial strains like the toxin producing E. coli, other strains of salmonella, a lady just brought me back some Shigella from Farinas in India. <laughs> Fun for me, not for her. Um, Campylobacter is another one. So we do allow patients to have this prescription, and they are able to self-initiate it um, if they feel that the diarrhea um, is going into a, a sort of a, a more serious uh, condition. Um, uh and It's very helpful for people. There's a, a standard joke that even if you don't use the uh, antibiotic, usually somebody on the trip is quite uh, happy somebody's got some. <laughs> the concept behind it, of course, you know, if we use antibiotics, the bacteria do get resistant, but uh, the course that we use for traveler's diarrhea is now very short. It's actually one, for example, for the Cipro, one twice a day for three days. Again, the idea of trying to be that we're trying to knock out those bad players, those toxin, E. coli, and, and bad actors, and not upset some of our good bacteria, um,
1: which of course is the goal these days. We used to uh, we used to uh, take medicine, antibiotics, when we were going to places uh, where we knew there was a lot of food and waterborne uh, bacteria for traveler's diarrhea, we took things prophylactically at one point. Uh, they were telling us to take Bactrim, then they went to Cipro. Uh, Do you take anything on a daily basis, even if you don't have something, or do you wait until you have something?
2: So, yeah, we've, uh, good point. We've definitely moved away from that prophylaxis with antibiotics. We did realize that that just did induce resistant organisms. And the reason Bactrim isn't used anymore is because most of the strains of Traveler's Diarrhea did get resistant to it. So, most of us feel strongly about using what we call early abortive therapy. So basically, you you wait for symptoms to happen um, uh, with, in terms of the Cipro, and then initiate it if you feel like you need it. Um, in terms of natural things, of course, um, probiotics um, people will sometimes use. Um, some people uh, uh, swear by uh, chewing two Pepto-Bismol tablets um, uh, every day on their trip. Um, you need to know that it turns your tongue uh, black and also your stools black. So people get a little worried if they don't know that they think they might be having a GI bleed or something. Um, but uh, I've never done that myself. I, oft- I do bring chewable Pepto-Bismol with me, but um, I tend to just um, not remember to do it. And so I use- just use the Cipro if I get into trouble.
1: <laughs> I, I tell you, I, I took the Pepto Bismol. I took it religiously with every meal, just one a day with every meal on all of my trips. And I never had a problem because oh, of that. And, and okay. Especially since I knew that it was going to turn colors and everything. But I have to say that that, that wasn't gross enough for what we're hoping for later. I could tell Christina <laughs> I could tell Christina like that, but we, we want more later. So
2: <laughs> more, <laughs> I I had one patient who said that he heard that if after every meal you had just drank a really stiff drink of like alcohol. You know, I'm with him would, on that. Yeah, <laughs> I said, well, I said, that would be hard to study because who would want to be in the control group, you know, <laughs>
0: group right. that didn't get to drink.
1: <laughs> yeah. And so, and I, you couldn't really figure out a placebo, could you?
0: I'll be in the group. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay. So. so- So we have a package and then we also have, if the person is uh, sick and they have their own medical problems where they're taking medicines on their own, they want to make sure, uh, you know, they're going on a two week trip. So they want to make sure they have a little extra in case there's a flight delay. I know that doesn't, or that rarely happens, but you want to have enough (laughs) medication. (laughs) You want to have enough medication and how do you, how do you carry that? Do you carry that on with you? Do you put that in your baggage and check it in? Does it go through an x-ray machine? Does that affect anything?
2: Yes. Yeah, so, um, the standard joke nowadays is, it's just all about liquids. Um, uh, in terms, there was a time, you know, years ago when we actually asked people not only to carry their, uh, prescription medicines, but then a copy of the prescription. And, um, That no longer really is necessary. Um, The only times that would come into play would be somebody bringing large volumes of narcotics, let's say a cancer patient traveling. um, Then you might want to have documentation um, of that. Um, And certain drugs... Uh, adderall and some of those ones might be a good idea but otherwise your cipro your blood pressure medications um those can all be just travel with you and i do advise um uh one of my advice is to travel light anyway um and try to do perhaps carry on um especially with the flight delays Uh, but that's a great um point is to to bring your your prescription medicines in your carry-on don't put them in your packed luggage because you want you want to be sure you don't lose those
1: are there any are there any medicines that need to be uh, kept cool you know some things we keep in refrigerators so if that's the case how do we travel like that yeah.
3: yeah.
2: Exactly. Luckily, almost all the travel medicines uh, that we give people to carry, uh, actually none of them need to be refrigerated. And even in the old days um, with some of the HIV medicines that needed to be kept refrigerated, they've come up with new formulations um, as well on that front. So the one I was thinking of, which is often usually given before the trip, is the um, there's a vaccine for typhoid. Um, oh, the oral typhoid vaccine. And that does come in a little box with four capsules. And that does have to be kept in the refrigerator. But that's taken every other day, four times like a Monday, Wednesday, Friday, Sunday. And that's taken before the traveler goes on the trip. So you don't run into trouble in terms of that. I've had some travelers that are business travelers that are doing other travel in between and they're uh, trying to tell me that they can get the airplane to put it in the refrigerator but i usually don't uh, advise that if if they have such a tight schedule that they don't have eight days where they can take the typhoid vaccine at home orally then it's probably a good idea to do the shot on that
1: patient what about uh in places where they have malaria for example as as just an example here There are medications that you can take and there are various choices of medications, maybe a daily dose or a a dose that you take a a different way. Sometimes you have to take them ahead of time. Sometimes you have to take them even after you come back. How does somebody determine whether they're going to have a side effect from a medication they've never taken? It would be miserable to go to a place that that you really want to go Uh to and then find out that you have a bad side effect from the medicine.
2: Yeah, yeah. I think the malaria topic is probably one of the most important topics we covered during a travel visit. Um, and the first step is actually determining if the person is actually going to be in an area where there is malaria risk. Um, The wonderful thing nowadays is we're all connected on our internets and phones, and so doctors across the world um, can stay in touch much better, and we can actually really fine tune where the malaria risk is in the world today. Years ago, um, if somebody was going to Cambodia or Vietnam, we would just say, okay, you need malaria pills, but nowadays I go over these maps with the patients that... um, are generated i actually have a subscription to a a company called shoreline which takes the cdc and the who world health organization data and merges Mm -hmm. it into a visual where the patient and i can sort of sit there and look at the map together and fine-tune their itinerary and i can actually sometimes give them their malaria pills at just the time when they're going into that area so it's really improved a lot Um, And malaria medicines, of course, get a bad reputation, mainly because of an older medicine called larium. Um, Methloquin is the generic name, and I always tell people, if you Googled larium, you'd see nightmares, insomnia, depression, suicide. Um, so it was all we had through the 90s, but we do not use much of that at all anymore in our com- uh, in our country. I always tell people, if people tell you, oh, I hear malaria pills make you crazy, I <laughs> say, tell them you're not on that one. <laughs> um, the better choices in uh, 2012 um, is something called malarone, which is a combination of two drugs, atovaquone and pro Um And the uh, my line always is that the only side effect of malarone seems to be on your purse, on your wallet, because it's still pretty expensive. Um, it's about 5 to $7 a pill, though they just came out with the generic, which is, is helping. Um, so that's a real plus because that can be started one day before uh, going into an area each day during and only seven oh, nice. days afterwards um, that older pill used to ha- start two weeks ahead of time and you have to go for four weeks afterwards um, and then um, I always tell people that the reason why you take it uh, after you leave the area is because if the parasite goes in on the last day uh, through the mosquito bite it takes a little trip through the liver and the medicines actually work in the bloodstream so every malaria pill always has what I call a tailpiece afterwards. Um, and then the, the last workhorse um, is good old doxycycline, uh, a, a tetracycline antibiotic. It's used for skin infections, acne in our country. Um, it's uh, cheap. I always say you can bring a bucket of it for $10. Um, and it started one day ahead of time, each day during, but it's taken for 30 days afterwards. It has a longer tailpiece. Um, and on that one, we go over with people um, sun sensitivity. Some people are sensitive on um, tetracycline uh, to the sun. So we would warn people, especially fair-skinned people, about sunscreen and hats and things like that. Um, women sometimes worry about yeast infections, um, but on the lower dose that we use um, uh, it's really not that common, but if a woman's prone to yeast infections, I would advise her to, to bring uh, a treatment for that, or perhaps consider the malarone. Um, and, and some people, there's, uh, there's one side effect also of doxycycline where we don't ask people to take it right before lying down at night because it might irritate their esophagus. Um, uh, but there's also a subgroup of the um, Peace Corps workers and long-term uh, workers on the ground that feel that the doxycycline might actually give a little protection against traveler's diarrhea, some of those E. coli strains and things like that. So that's perhaps a plus on the side of doxycycline. So I usually go over with a traveler and it's very interesting, um, sort of present them the different drugs um, and uh, they make their choices. Um, and I think your your point about um, starting things beforehand uh, is good. Um, it's interesting with the malarone being so um, well tolerated we actually don't do that. Um, it's a good thought, but since the pill's expensive, um, most people opt to just take it on their trip. And you know, I think in all my years, uh, well, uh, at least the last 15 when malarone's been the predominant one, I think I've maybe had two people um, have any trouble with it. Um, and one of them was just uh, some mouth sores. But I mean, and so millions and millions of doses of malarone going into people with really very few side effects. Uh, matter of fact, it's so popular that uh, apparently it's uh, there's a counterfeit uh, version of it that's coming out of China. So the joke is don't buy malarone in Beijing because <laughs> uh, it might not be malarone. So, um, but these are great drugs, and I think I try to help people get away from the uh, prejudice that there is against malaria medicines because they're remembering that old medicine. And I think the ones we have nowadays are well worth taking, and with the information we have, we can really fine tune the time that they might need to be on it. So,
1: we've you made actually a lot helped of me there in uh, making some decisions on my next trip. That was great. Uh, if, but as an aside, you did you did bring up something: uh, women that are prone to say a yeast infection, and they, for some reason, choose the doxycycline, and they're going to be away for two weeks. They start getting what they believe is a yeast infection. They have to still continue the doxycycline. How do they treat the yeast infection uh, through that process?
0: But but excuse me, before you answer that question, is that in lieu of taking the malarium? Yes. So it's either or? Uh, Yes. I see. Okay, thank you.
2: Yes. So, yeah, you choose one of, you have your three choices, malarium, I wouldn't recommend, doxycycline, or uh, malarone. Mm-hmm. So you have three choices. Uh, there are some other instances, there's uh, parts of Central America where you can still use chloroquine, um, uh, but most of the rest of the world is malaria has become chloroquine resistant. The, so um, so we have to yeah, use so, those other uh,
1: drugs. In, in the process, do you if you know that someone has a yeast uh, prone type of infection and they do choose to take the doxycycline, uh, do you set them up and give them instructions on what's the best way? What's the best, you know, do you take one on the third day? Do you continuously take something for the yeast infection as you're taking the doxycycline?
2: Yeah. So if you choose doxycycline, you have to c- commit to it and stay on it. So the, the woman would have to treat the yeast infection through, um, through the, the doxycycline. And, I will often prescribe, if a woman mentions that, um, the diflucan, the fluconazole, which is the pill treatment for yeast infections. Most women that have battled through the creams and salves will always come in and say, please give me the pill. <laughs> it works very effectively. Um, so, uh, But then there also, obviously, there's some natural measures uh, uh, that people try yogurt douches and things like that. But, um, no, you have to stay on the doxycycline. If the person goes off the doxycycline, um, um, then they are technically at mm. risk for malaria.
1: Uh, so Okay. Now good. we're, we're over in our, uh, happy place. We're traveling and everything is great. We're taking our medications and something happens to us. We get sick while we're over there or we get hurt. What's, uh. What do you suggest as a travel medicine physician?
2: Well, again, that's when that having the uh, evacuation uh, insurance. Um, there's also, I mean, if it's not that serious, let's say you're just running a fever and you need to be evaluated, right. um, that's when you, you want to tap into the sort of the local uh, doctors. Um, there also is um, on the CDC website also the ability to look. At your country of destination, and to get um, clinics that are there. There's also I often will give patients um, particular references. Uh, there's the International Association of Medical Assistance for Travelers, which is uh, has a booklet that lists the clinics, and I think that's very useful for people to have a specific uh, clinic uh, that they know to go to. Um, would, and then would you I, would you
1: repeat that one, please?
2: Oh. The International Association of Medical Assistance for Travelers, IMAT we call it, um, and it's, um, it's not available, um, it's more of a physician membership, um, so again, that the patients can't access the clinics in there, but if, again, if they're with me, um, I usually will make a copy of, for example, the uh, clinics in Kenya, if they're going to Kenya. Um, a nice resource that I have too is um, uh, through this International Society of Travel Medicine. I've actually met and worked with various colleagues throughout the world. So it's really nice if somebody's going to be trekking in Nepal um, and I can give them the name of a colleague of mine that I know works in one of the big uh, health clinics in Kathmandu. So a personal touch to it is great. Mm-hmm. Um, I- so that's even better. But a sick traveler, yes, uh, the most important thing is you want to seek medical assistance, and especially if in your uh, a malaria risk area, you you want to be uh, checked for malaria. The good news is now globally we have these uh, rapid diagnostic tests for malaria. It used to be you would have to make a blood smear and a, uh, somebody would have to look at the blood smear and make the diagnosis. Now these rapid antigen tests can be done. Uh, Quite quickly and often by nurses and nursing assistants in in other countries. So that's made a huge difference in malaria diagnosis globally. Mm.
1: Well, and then we uh, finish our trip, we come home. Is there a certain amount of time uh, that we can be home that we could say, okay, now I'm sick and it's not related to my travel, or uh, <laughs> say you get very interesting. Go ahead i think you understand my question Um, right
2: i totally get it yes and it's a good question because actually that's how we um look incubation period as we call it, is how we look at illness uh, or fever in a returning traveler and we exactly look at the time from their arrival back so there's short incubation diseases Uh, which are sometimes like uh, dengue fever, yellow fever. Um, And then there's longer incubation period uh, diseases. And uh, an infectious disease doctor actually has books that can show them columns of diseases that would occur within the different incubation periods. The one that's interesting, of course, is malaria. Um, Malaria comes in four varieties, so to say. Um, And the severe form of malaria does usually present... uh, fairly quickly, you know, within four weeks after a trip. However, there are some milder forms. Well, I always say milder, the patients that have had them say they weren't very mild, but the the less severe forms of malaria, P. vivax and P. ovale, um, they, when they make that trip through the liver, they can sort of stay there and those parasites can sort of emerge um, later on. So I tell travelers uh, emerge and cause fever and symptoms. So I tell travelers, even if it's up to, for example, a year after a trip, for example, to a malaria risk area, and then they're in an emergency room with a fever and illness. Do always mention to the doctor that well, I did go to Kenya uh, six months ago, just so that they keep uh, malaria sort of in the differential uh, as they're considering what your illness is. So so yes, uh, but once you get out past a year. Um, uh, you get the list gets pretty small in terms of uh, infections. It doesn't go ever really go to zero, but uh, it gets smaller.
1: What about the travel bug where you want to travel again?
0: Okay. Uh, yeah. well, that's good. That's a good thing. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay, you don't want to cure that one.
0: Um, <coughs> I don't want to cure that. Uh, What's, Dr. Scully, sure. what about um, we'd heard of one called the Ross River fever and other diseases oh. that might recur in the system during your lifetime. What are those about? <laughs> well, Ross River is, is pretty unusual, um, uh,
2: but I think when people talk about recurring diseases, a lot of times they'll go back to malaria and say, oh, I hear once you've got malaria, you never can get rid of it. And that's because of that story about the, the liver phase of some of the forms of malaria. Now the good news on that front um, is is that nowadays we actually figured out that if you use the right dose of a medication called primaquine, um, that you can actually get rid of those uh, forms in the liver. So we're seeing less of these late uh, relapses um, uh, from from that particular disease. So, um, but yes, there are certain diseases. Um, that can go into sort of a more dormant phase. Um, But they're not the common ones that I would worry about with most of the travelers today. Mm -hmm. You would think of that a little bit more in maybe perhaps a migrant population. I see.
1: We're talking about a lot of travel away. What about in this country? Are there any places that we have to be concerned about?
0: (laughs) (laughs) My
2: neighbors. Well, um, you know, I think, um, no, I think in general we are, um, uh, from a standpoint of, of, of uh, food and water, uh, we're pretty lucky in our country. Um, I think if you get, though, into um, uh, food and water aspects of, um, uh, for example, trucks that sell food off, you know, uh, lunch for, you know, the what do they call those, the, Uh, trailers that come and serve food to people. I mean, there's always a risk of of, uh, food poisoning uh, from those things. So that's probably um, in our country right now, we're having um, obviously an increase in West Nile um, uh, virus um, that's uh, transmitted by a mosquito. And so our numbers for West Nile encephalitis are up this year. So um, again, we're lucky enough in our country that we don't have um, malaria or yellow fever anymore. We did at one point in time in our history. There was an epidemic in 1793 that wiped out most of the population of Philadelphia from yellow fever. But we're lucky enough now that from the mosquito aspect, uh, it kind of comes down to uh, West Nile and some of these encephalitis viruses um, as well. But we're not totally safe, but we're pretty safe.
1: (laughs) But we we do have to be concerned if we're out camping, drinking certain river water, giardia, things like that.
2: Exactly, good point. Giardia is in our local streams. Um, I think most people know enough. I hope know enough not to to drink without uh, filtering their water from a local stream. But that's a very good point. Um, and then you bring up camping too. Always comes to mind with tick um, transmitted illness. um
3: Lyme. You know, certainly
2: in parts of the country. Lyme disease, ehrlichiosis, babesia. So we have quite a few of those. And of course. Um, not related to ticks, but uh, camping, of course we have the Hanta virus going on uh, with the outbreak in Yosemite of the, uh, this virus um, uh, from usually from rodent droppings and people inhaling aerosols um, of the virus. So mm-hmm. CDC has an alert out right now for people that were in the Yosemite uh, camps over the summertime so. So, yeah, so we, we we have different diseases than uh, sometimes the other countries across the water.
1: You know, speaking about diseases, it's a great segue. What's the most bizarre or pathogenic uh, little critter out there that we should be concerned about on the planet?
2: Oh, on the whole planet, huh? Yeah, and make
1: it really <laughs> well, gross and gory for Christina.
2: <laughs> oh, just for me. Yeah, I don't care. Well, I think probably the one that evokes uh, the most fear in people still is Ebola, Mm. Uh, the Ebola uh, disease, um, which luckily is is very rare. Uh, There's recently was an outbreak in Uganda. Congo is having a couple of cases too. But when the Ebola breaks out, uh, everybody from the CDC, WHO rushes in and sort of tries to get it under control because um, that's uh, what we call a hemorrhagic fever. Um, sort of simply put, you sort of uh, start to bleed out all your uh, orifices, as we say. So, nose bleeds and mouth bleeding. And it's a pretty, I don't actually mind if I don't ever see that disease. Mm -hmm. You know, as an infectious disease doctor, you usually want to see all the uh, cases uh, of certain illnesses, but that's one one I'm okay with passing on.
0: (laughs) And how is that one contracted?
2: (laughs) Um, Through blood um, primarily and and, uh, bodily fluids. um, uh, And uh, with proper techniques, it can be um, stopped, but um, (laughs) sometimes the burial practices of some of the tribes where this originates uh, involves um sort of consuming body parts and things like that and, and that's mm-hmm. not good and then when it gets into the one person gets into the healthcare system of course then doctors and nurses um get exposed because um, it's not only from blood mm-hmm. so it's a it's a tough
0: tough you have blood. to tell them to cook the Cook the 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 corpse first, for God's sake.
1: Those <laughs> okay. no sushi brains. <laughs>
0: that's
2: a good point. <laughs> but I thought you were going to ask me, Glenn, about my most interesting case when you when you started.
1: I was going to. Down that I point. was well. That okay. I am going to ask you. Uh, what's been the most? Okay, easily. What's the most fascinating case you've ever had?
2: Well, I said that's too hard because there's just too many I know. good ones. I
1: know. Give us a couple. Of them. Uh,
2: all right. Well, you, you have to wait on the. Uh, I think it's October nineteenth. Uh, Animal Planet. The Monsters Within Me is a local Santa Barbara case that they're showing. Uh, so I won't give that one away. But that's a pretty interesting case uh, of a local uh, a local patient that I took care of. Um, but I thought Christina might enjoy um, the story of Botfly. So, Botfly. Um, I had a group of students. They were um, local students that went off to Belize um, on a mission trip. Um, And three of the students, I actually only took care of two of them, returned with something called botfly. So, Christina, this is what a botfly larva looks like. I don't know Uh, if you can see it. That big? It's a larva, yes. So what happens with this, no, that's a, a magnifying. So they're, they can be up to about, the ones I got out of this patient was probably about, uh, oh, about an inch. Um, and so what happens is the botfly lays its eggs on the mosquito tummy um, and then lets the mosquito distribute its eggs. And so when the mosquito is biting a human, the, the larva decides that it's time then to move off and into the skin um, usually they're not looking so much for humans. They prefer sort of cattle and horses, but they'll, they'll take what they can get. So, <laughs> And the, what happens is, is that the person just gets a mosquito bite. They don't know it at the time. But gradually, as the weeks go on, especially if it's something, they'll, they'll notice a lump. And they'll just think, well, maybe this is a pimple or something. But obviously, the lump doesn't go away and starts to get a little bit bigger. Sometimes they notice <laughs> a little movement, and that's usually when they say hmm this is not good
0: <laughs> my brain is losing um, out
2: <laughs> and um so there's a lot if you google um uh bot fly you know uh images you can uh, youtube there's lots of images of trying to get these fly larvae out of your skin there's uh, home remedies of using duct tape or super glue or oh actually bacon too because the uh, the uh, the nodule has a little hole um, that the worm is, breathing through. The larva is breathing through. So the idea is you cover up in the breathing hole. Maybe it'll get angry and want to come out on its
3: own.
2: in my experience, that hasn't worked. It usually is quite happy to stay there until it's time to come out. So usually we need a little surgical procedure to help it along. Um, The larva has these uh, spines on it, which make it actually somewhat difficult. Um, It wants to stay in and we want it out and the spines go in the wrong direction. So... But the good news about this disease, which is kind of fun, is is that, um, first of all, the person's not very sick, um, and not sick good. at all, really. Um, and the other good news is, of course, once the bot flies out, it's completely fine. They don't even need antibiotics. It's gone. It's done. So it's
0: just like an <laughs> and irritation And they've got a great
2: story. Yeah. Well, the larva's in there, um, and it just needs to come out. If it didn't, if we didn't take it out, it would complete that phase of its life cycle, And actually, then it would want to emerge from your skin, and it would drop to the ground and pupate, as we call it, and become an adult uh, fly. So it's just going through its life cycle, and it just decided it needed to do it in our skin. Well, it's
0: warm (laughs) and moist and the perfect cocoon.
2: (laughs) So that's another reason why um, uh, repellents are important, you know, not getting bit by mosquitoes. Uh, For example, um, uh, this uh, group, uh, the group leaders were going to bring the repellents for all the students. But the students told me by about day three, all the repellents were gone and they were just covered with Mm -hmm. bites. Um, And then at night they were sleeping out and they didn't have nets. Netting is a great barrier method uh, for um, for preventing mosquito bites. So so actually three students came back from that same trip with uh, with botfly. I only saw two out of the three. Another doctor saw the third one, but it was quite a story.
1: <laughs> is, that, uh, <laughs> is the uh, lump at the site of the inoculation by the mosquito? Is it somewhere migrated?
2: Exactly, exactly. Now that's usually right where it is. The mosquito bites and the larvae comes off usually in that area. Um, so so some people, I've been actually on the Amazon with some of the um, uh, film crew, and I had one cameraman who every time she got a mosquito bite, she would take a needle and she'd pick away, <laughs> hoping that, that she's. I don't want one of those butt, butt flies to get in me, but I would not advise that. <laughs> I think that's a little over the top. And
0: opening the skin up for more infection, right? <laughs>
2: exactly more trouble more
0: trouble oh my goodness so
2: just use repellents it's a better as i say in my business um uh with mosquito uh ticks and insect trends i said you don't get bit you don't get sick easier said than But actually that's
0: that's uh, not uh, not, at least that's not too bad i mean at least you don't get the major fevers and you know you're not bedridden and things like that no mary louise Um, these kids were all good Yes.
1: This is an important for a lot of the people that listen to this show. Uh, many of them are into natural medicines and natural healings, and sometimes don't like to take some of the other things. And when we look at some of these repellents that have the DEET mm-hmm. or something like that, that they seem pretty powerful. At some point, when you read a lot of the ingredients, they seem to be things that a lot of people don't necessarily want to cover their skin with daily. Absolutely. Uh,
2: No, I I think that's a good point, Glenn. I I always say to patients, I said I try and would love to live in a world without chemicals, but sometimes when things are biting me that have dengue or yellow fever mm -hmm. or malaria, I I find myself able to compromise. Um, I think the compromise on that is um, if you look, the CDC recommendations are for particularly DEET, um, I always say to people that's not DDT, it's Um, uh, but it is a chemical. And um, I think finding the moderation on that, I usually, and so does the CDC, advise people to sort of stick with your 20 to 35% product, they go all the way up to 100%. I always jokingly say that'll melt your skin or your camera if you're the cameraman. <laughs> so I think going with a 25% product, um, 25 to 35% product, um, applying it on exposed skins during times of risk. And then actually, if you're back in, screened, air conditioning, obviously washing it off, um, sort of minimizing your time on it is is a great way. We do feel that DEET and the the CDC has said that DEET is um, um, safe in children over two months of age. So even for children, I know you're right, moms have a lot of concern. we do still feel it's safe. The newest um, ingredient uh, is called picaridin, and the CDC has given their blessing for that to be used as an alternative to DEET. Um, uh, but don't fool yourself. It's uh, marketing-wise, they put natural on it, mm-hmm. but it's not natural. It's just an alternative chemical. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in our country, um, you can get some mileage um with uh, lemon elliptis um which is a natural and everybody feels comfortable with that um the problem is the mosquitoes vary like for example west nile is a culix mosquito in our country and probably the lemon elliptis works better on that particular mosquito as a repellent um, unfortunately with uh, malaria you've got the anopheles mosquito and dengue the 80s mosquito and probably it's not as effective um, in in other parts of the world. So I always tell people um, there's other remedies, you know, garlic, B6. I say it's fine to sort of have those products with you. um, And certainly you can try them, but if you find yourself being bit, then you want to have a backup plan of going to the DEET. So Mm
3: -hmm.
2: it would be wonderful if we could come up with a completely natural uh, derived one that works, but we're not quite there yet. I hope so in my lifetime.
1: <laughs> How about the uh, the uh, marketing products where the clothing has the DEET in them? Uh,
2: yes. Actually, it's slightly different. It's uh, permethrin, which is right. the, the substance. Um, and That is a great idea. Um, I actually advocate, I might even have, I think I brought a show and tell. I had my show and tell for you, but yeah, this is a nice can. Um, And the nice thing about that is you can spray the clothing uh, before you go um, your own clothing. You can actually buy clothing where it's been done for you. It's called buzz off clothing, but I always say it's about $70 for the shirt. So it's <laughs> a little more cost effective to buy the $10 can. Um, and you can spray your clothing a nice sunny day out in the yard. Um, and it, the clothing will get all wet, um, and ugly looking, but it does dry. Um, I always say don't try it on your most favorite shirt at first, but that's a great, um, a resource and it works for um, ticks, mosquitoes, uh, sand flies. Um, for example, our military does their clothing usually every several months. Um, you can go further and actually soak clothes in it. Um, uh, but usually for my travelers, usually the spray is usually plenty. Mm-hmm. Um, so. so that's mainly for clothing only. Yeah. So you'll see people start to to use deep products on their clothing, but I would stick to the recommendation that the permethrin goes on the clothing mm-hmm. um, and then they use the, uh, the DEET on the skin. The permethrin um, blend is what they've been putting on all the insect netting and distributing um, this in Africa and other countries in the world with um, malaria, because if you can get mom and the children under a mosquito net at night, you can break the cycle of malaria because malaria needs infected people to kind of keep the cycle going. Oh. So uh, the permethrin net treated netting is, is a great idea. Um, and I often do advise travelers to bring their own netting if uh, there are accommodations are going to be more camping and things like that. Mm-hmm.
1: It's hard to believe now that anyone would ever travel without talking to you. I'm not even sure I want to. Or going
0: to the CDC website.
1: Well, I even to go to Trader Joe's now. Maybe I'm a little concerned. Well, as
0: I said to you, my neighbors. No. (laughs) Uh, But um, you know, I'm going to take us back a little bit about preparing for travel because I'm one of those moms that did not have their child immunized, and I am, of course, part of a growing group of parents that I've chosen not to immunize their child. So because of that, that was one reason why I've chosen not to go overseas or to Asia or anything like that at this point in time. Um, Not saying that I don't believe in immunizations. That's not what I'm saying. I do get immunized when I go into certain places, like if I'm, you know, filming in the jungle in Thailand. (laughs) Believe me, I got all my shots, you know. Um, And so what you were saying earlier about you know the children that have come up to the age where it's time to travel, you are saying that they have to do a series of catch-up immunizations. Yes, can uh-huh. you fill us in on that we right do. now? Because I think I have a slew of parents that would love to hear this, and and they should be. Well, actually, you can.
2: Sorry. You do um, as a child ages. So at sixteen, um, certain of the childhood vaccines, um, uh, for example, that are given. Uh, when children are first born um, uh, would no longer be pertinent mm-hmm. so that you do with the growth uh, you do uh, for example the pneumonia vaccine uh, the children get uh, the hemophilus vaccine the Hib vaccine um, and the rotavirus vaccine those would drop out of the adult. so there's a catch-up schedule and actually you can see it on the CDC website mm-hmm. uh, it's just all laid out there in terms of the catch-up schedule, but usually what that involves is going to be primarily uh, catching them up on the hepatitis A, hepatitis B, um, the tetanus. You know what we call the the tetanus tetanus, diphtheria and whooping cough piece there's a series of those um, we usually still would catch them up on polio though luckily polio is almost being eliminated um, and so there is a set catch up schedule um, that's much more I think digestible uh, a lot of the childhood ones go away as the child Mm -hmm. ages because they are no longer at risk for those so there is a catch-up schedule it's not like we're giving though the same schedule that you would give Mm -hmm. to a two-month-old or a six-month-old so Mm
3: -hmm. Mm
0: -hmm. i mean i i would feel fine with that once my child becomes a teenager and everything i would i feel more comfortable with that whereas as a child i when i looked at that list i was "Uh, i don't think so you know yeah. yeah well,
2: it's just very different. I mean plus two in our country, we just don't see for example measles um and so it's a very very different perspective. I work in Africa and um in the middle of Africa, I'll watch these mothers holding their babies um uh for two hours sometimes in the in the blazing sun in a long line to get measles vaccine mm. for their child because they're not educated, but all they know simply is, is that the babies that get immunized for measles live and the ones that don't die. Right. So they, they've got a whole different perspective on immunizations than we do in our country. We're We're so lucky in one sense because we don't have these... The visual image anymore. Some of the, the horrifying effects of some of these diseases, and to watch you know your child die of something that could have been prevented. So it's so such a different uh, such a different uh, situation yes. uh, than in countries where they still are able to see the ravages of some of these diseases that we're trying to prevent. Right,
0: right. Of course, and of course they, they don't have the funding to bring all that in either. Right, Because they're not educated by it, and then they don't have the funding to actually have it for everyone and available for everyone, as we do here in the States. Mm-hmm. Yes, I mean, the... Ministry of
2: Health of each country tries very hard with the help of UNICEF and other mm-hmm. programs to sort of have a childhood immunization standards, um, but they do make priorities um, in, in terms of their supply, which is sometimes short mm-hmm. supply. Um, but, uh, for example, there is a standard immunization schedule for each country uh, during childhood, um, um, whether it's Chad or whether it's uh, England. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> so, so what happens with... Um... I know several adults who have never been immunized at all in their life and yet they now have to do some traveling because you know they're on, you know in the entertainment industry or so what happens with them do they also have to do the whole catch-up schedule um,
2: well, again, you'd fine tune it to the individual, but for example, um, the big players like hepatitis A, hepatitis B, um, and the tetanus, um, groupings, um, uh, probably would become standard in, in that person as well. I am, I do actually see quite a few people like that. I, I'm often the first person to also ever give someone their flu shot. A lot of people come in and they're like, oh, I don't do flu shots, but I always tease my travelers. I said... Yeah, I said, but you get flu in India. I said, you know, we're going to worry that it's dengue or malaria uh, or one of the other infectious diseases because they all start out with fever, chills and flu-like symptoms. Um, So I am a big advocate of that um, in the travelers and also those long airplane flights where everybody's packed in. Uh, Some of these flights now are 15 plus hours. Uh, And again, I always say it's it's always flu season somewhere in the world. So when uh, Southern Hemisphere moves out of their flu season, the northern hemisphere moves into our flu season, and in the tropics, there's flu all year round. <laughs> so so um, I'm a big advocate, and I've, I'm often the people's first flu shot um, uh, in that sense. People sometimes say, well... I hear you can get the flu, um, and of course you can't because it's an inactivated vaccine. We think the reason why that comes up is because sometimes when people get motivated to get their flu shot is usually when everybody else is dropping around them with the right. flu, um, and so they get their flu shot. But of course they've already been exposed, and then they come down with the flu, and so the flu shot gets blamed. But um, so that's it's interesting to because uh, some people, uh, I'm often the first one to sort of. And they're like yeah i can kind of see the point uh, maybe maybe i better take the plunge this time <laughs> so.
1: when you uh travel are you ever more paranoid because of the things you know
2: no i think i'm a pretty cavalier traveler <laughs> maybe it's that um sort of that uh Cowpox theory of sort of I like to expose myself to uh, small things, uh, keep my immune system strong. <laughs> you know, but I do I do advocate wash I do wash my hands um, uh, frequently and uh, before meals if I can things like that. And but that, that's about as far as I go in terms of paranoia.
1: <laughs> I read I read an article that you wrote uh, and you spoke about in traveling around, especially as a physician, how. Uh, how many different, uh, nonprofits and charitable organizations and people doing great work in terms of healing all over the world. You want to just address that for a moment?
2: Well, yeah, there's a lot of good things going on out there. Um, And what's really inspiring, too, is even here in Santa Barbara, um, I see many student groups, um, uh, church groups. um, uh, The Rotary Club, for example, at one point was going over to uh, India and helping uh, distribute polio vaccine. Uh, India now is free of polio, actually, as of 2011. So really some great work being done. And, And really, I think it's kind of interesting from the perspective of all the different types of people doing it, young people, um, sometimes a group of mothers, bringing books to an orphanage in Uganda, um, just all across the board, uh, all the different types of people, sometimes uh, uh, engineers without borders, going to dig wells over in uh, countries that don't have clean water. Um, It's truly inspiring, really.
1: Uh, We just had a visitor from uh, Kathmandu, uh, a gentleman named Amrit, who uh, runs an orphanage there and does trekking tours. Uh, but he was over here, and he was trying to talk about the orphanage in Kathmandu, and the Rotary Club was very good for him. So uh, I think a lot of those places are really good. Mary Louise, uh, for each of our guests, we always ask for a special health tip uh, based on your own journeys and travels that you can give to our global community. And I... I can't wait to hear this, uh, do you have something for um, us? Not that there's so, such fresh-
3: well, <laughs>
2: um so so for this is only for travelers or for more sort of healthy living and
0: things. Or
1: oh I think specifically well, now that you've offered that, we want two from you
0: <laughs>
1: oh. or or you can have the choice anything you like.
0: <laughs>
2: Well, I was going to say one of the practical aspects for travel, it's not very um, uh, fancy, but I was going to say, getting back to healthy, um, uh, bringing healthy snacks with you uh, on the plane. Um, I don't know about you, but I find it pretty hard to find good, healthy food when you're in an airport or on an airplane. So, you know, some dried fruit or nuts uh, is always a good choice. Uh, because, And also the other problem is, of course, at 27,000 feet when they've got the uh, seatbelt light on and uh, for turbulence, and it seems like forever and never is going to go off, that you at least have something food because it's no fun to be hungry. Uh, so that was my travel
1: tip. It's not very That's perhaps. a great it's a great, a great tip,
0: tip actually. People oh, okay. never believe me when I say that.
1: <laughs> no, it's a great tip. And I and it's almost one of the benefits of cutbacks on the airlines now. You know, I I always counted on the airline food and now I actually do it the other way where I specifically bring things and if there's something there I don't even care. But I I think mm-hmm. that's a great tip. I think tip. that's I I did we lose sound here?
3: (laughs) Oh no! Sorry. Was I supposed to? Oh, I was
2: supposed to give you two tips, right?
1: (laughs) Three. I think. Well, I was going to say what we agreed on. Three, wasn't it, Christina?
2: Oh no. (laughs) (laughs)
3: Oh
2: no. Um, But no, I was going to say. For I mean, I balance my world also with infectious disease um, here, um, as well as travel, um, and um, I think my Life uh, has told me over the years that, you know, uh, although we try to stay healthy, um, no matter how hard we try, there's going to be times when we're going to get sick. Um, And I think that's the hardest part for people um, is I always say that uh, to listen to their bodies and really sort of give in when they do get sick. Um, So often somebody uh, maybe made the diagnosis of mono or pneumonia or perhaps a foot infection that I know is going to take four to six weeks. And these patients will sit there and look at me with these kind of wide eyes and anxious look and say, oh, you don't understand, Dr. Sully. I just so cannot be sick right now. I just I just can't be sick right now. <laughs> oh, I have a thesis due. I have a uh, you know, a big presentation. I have a TV show maybe to do. Um, uh, I'm in the finals of the CIF volleyball tournament and I'm the star <laughs> player. Um, so I've heard a million excuses, a million reasons over the years, And I just kind of leaned back and I kind of shake my head and I said, well, you know, in all my years, I said, I've never seen that that works. <laughs> I said, your body just doesn't take orders. <laughs> and so I really try to encourage people to uh, give into it, listen to their body, allow their body time. Um, I can certainly give them medication, um, and that's part of the cure, but they really do need to rest and de-stress and really let the immune system do what it needs to do during those times of illness. Christina,
1: are you listening?
0: Um, (laughs) Yes, but I have this magical illusion. I think I'm a little bit of a magician here.
3: (laughs) 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 Glenn, I I don't
0: say that I cannot be right now. I say, I say to my body, you're allowed to be right now, but I just have to continue doing what I have to do. <laughs> All
1: right. Mary Louise, we've, we've covered a lot of territory today, and I just want to uh, ask you if there's anything specific that you had thought that you would like to speak about today for a few moments that we didn't bring up
2: Let's see. I think we did pretty well covering things. We got our malaria covered and yellow fever and food and water precautions. I think Um, I spent a lot of time during, I I spent a lot of time during the, um, Visit going over food and water precautions, you know, avoiding tap water, going for bottled, boiled, or filtered water. Uh, Food that's hot, generally thermally hot, is a less risky, uh, less risky than a cold salad or raw food. Mm -hmm. Um, Carbonated beverages, uh, bottled soda pop, bottled beer, luckily, right? (laughs) Um, As opposed to a drink with uh, ice in it is always a better uh, choice. Um, So I like to go over those. ideas with the uh, patients uh, when they're in the visit. Just kind of reinforce it. I know many of my travelers are uh, have traveled frequently and I think generally kind of understand the food and water precautions. But I, I, never, I always think it doesn't hurt to go over it one more time.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. Absolutely.
1: Thank you for that. Uh, we're grateful to our very special guest, Dr. Mary Louise Scully, for sharing her wisdom and expertise with us today. Uh, I'd like to thank uh, all of my healers and all of my teachers as they've kept me on my journey. And I look forward to uh, getting together again next week with uh, all of you and Christina, as we go through another quadrant of the healthcare galaxy. And until that time, I wish you all optimal health. And thank you so much, Mary Louise Scully. Yes.
0: Thank you so much, Dr. Scully and Dr. Glenn Wollman. This has been a Such a fun ride. I mean, such a fun little journey that we're on this morning. Um, Again, we invite you all to join us here at yogahub.tv every Tuesday for our magical medical tour at 10.30 a.m. Pacific Standard Time, 1.30 Eastern Time. And of course, for Trinity of Life on Wednesdays at 11 a.m. Pacific Standard Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time. And if you would like to connect directly with Dr. Glenn Wollman, uh, you're welcome to contact him via myyogahub.com forward slash G Woolman or over Twitter at um, over Twitter at Glenn Woolman, or through his <coughs> web address, which is website, glenwolman.com. Be sure to try his metaphor square breath when you're on his site. That's something that helps us get through each show and through the day. <laughs> So it's a great thing to learn. Until then, we look forward to seeing you and namaste.